This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Welcome to Episode 2 of the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. This is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. This episode consists of the second part of the interview with Professor Klaus Dodds, one of the world's foremost authorities on geopolitics and polar affairs. In this part of the interview, we discuss the new British Arctic policy, Beyond the Ice, UK policy towards the Arctic. We also take up the complex relations between the UK and Russia, and the role that some believe the Arctic Council plays in helping to uphold the liberal international order. Professor Dodds also considers the possibility of an eventual strategy articulating British interest in Antarctica and the Southern Ocean. I began by asking Klaus what is new about Beyond the Ice, and what aspects of the policy represent a continuation of the previous British Arctic policy, Adapting to Change, which was published five years ago. The first thing I think is really interesting about the new UK Arctic policy is actually the title change. Adapting to Change was the title, as you say, in 2013. But in 2018, the title changes to Beyond the Ice, which I think appears to suggest that within four to five years, the British government has decided that actually we're no longer adapting to change per se, we're adapting to a particular state change, which is an Arctic where there is significantly less ice. And in particular, of course, it's making reference to the maritime Arctic, but also arguably to the instability and permafrost in countries like Russia and Canada. But I think as a, a near neighbor to the Arctic, much of the focus is on the marine Arctic and the idea that actually we are going to witness an ice-free Arctic sometime in the 21st century. I think it's really, really important to recognize when, for example, we make reference to ice-free, I think this is often not well understood by people who don't work in the area. We're not, for example, saying that all the sea ice will disappear. It's a very, very particular definition, which refers to less than a particular square kilometer or square mileage of sea ice. So I think that's important. It does not mean that literally every last piece of sea ice has disappeared. In terms of change, I would say the biggest change is really this is a document that has to be understood in a post-Brexit context. So when you read the document, you will see that, for example, right up at the front, there's a section called Projecting Global Influence. And the Foreign Office, that it was primarily responsible for this document, has made it perfectly clear that the way in which the Arctic is going to get understood in terms of Britain's relationship with it is through this expression that has become quite popular with the current government, Global Britain. So the way in which the uh, minister, for example, Sir Alan Duncan, refers to the Arctic in the foreword is to make explicit reference that this is an opportunity for Britain to share its experience and expertise for all interested parties with regard to the Arctic. So for me, one of the one of the biggest differences is a more explicit referencing on what Britain can usefully bring to bear on Arctic matters. And you'll see throughout the document, there's a huge emphasis placed not only on science, as you probably expect, but also on business. 
so you'll see throughout the document references to the work that government does to promote the interface or the intersection between science and business. And the other thing that the document makes clear, and this is more continuity than change, is all the things that you would expect. So, for example, respecting the sovereignty of the eight Arctic states, being sensitive to northern and indigenous communities, giving great emphasis to the importance, for example, of climate change. But the document does not shy away from the fact that it thinks that Britain has legitimate interest in the Arctic, and it thinks that Britain is making a major contribution to the production, for example, of knowledge about the Arctic. And I think the only other thing I would say, is, which is a discernible change, is if you were to read the document and go towards the end, there's a particular emphasis is made on the new investment, and in particular, the launching of our, our new polar vessel called the Sir David Attenborough. So I think that is also center stage here, which is to say, look, we're very interested in the Arctic, we have knowledge and expertise, we're attentive to business opportunities, and we are investing in infrastructure that will allow us to carry out, for example, high-quality, world-leading science. You mentioned they're projecting global influence. That phrasing reminds me of what you often hear about China, that their interest in the polar regions is a way to project global influence. What makes the Arctic and Antarctica so interesting as places to project influence globally for countries such as China and the UK? One of the things that we're seeing, and I think many commentators have picked up on this, is we're seeing a fundamental ongoing reframing of the Arctic as a global region. And this is something that is being done both inside and outside of the Arctic. So, for example, you know, a Finnish scholar like Lassie Heinonen has a project called Global Arctic. John Kerry, when he was Secretary of State under the, the last Obama administration, talked about a one Arctic, and he made analogies with the Arctic bridging other regions. Northern and indigenous community leaders have spoken about the Arctic not only as a homeland, as an inhabited space, but also as something that has a global significance. And I think one of the interesting things that you're sort of seeing here is this sort of negotiation, this constant negotiation between where the global and the regional and the local intersect, but also begin and end. So you're absolutely right. If we were reading this document, this is a UK document that's headed, for example, projecting global influence. Now, if this had been written, for example, by the Chinese foreign ministry, you could imagine that actually the reaction to that might have been quite different. So, for example, if we changed all the references to the UK government and put in the Chinese government, how would commentators, particularly in the West, have responded to that? You know, would we have had newspaper headlines saying China determined to increase its grip on Arctic affairs? So I think we have to be clear that the way places get framed is always controversial, it's always, for example, subject to debate. It's rarely a settled matter. And the second thing we have to accept is that there are things that sometimes we want to see being exerted and influencing, and there are things that we don't. So, for example, a lot of Arctic communities would say, we would love to have better internet connectivity. 
because it enables us to, for example, to connect with global communities as well as more local regional communities more easily. But on the other hand, those same communities might say, actually, if that means, for example, we're more exposed to things that we don't like, then suddenly the global becomes a distinctly less appealing sort of characteristic. So I do think when you see a big heading projecting global influence, it gets read in so many different and interesting ways that, for example, the authors of this report may not have anticipated. For example, it is perfectly possible that people who read this report might have another reaction which is triggered, which says, well, this sounds like Imperial Britain again, wanting to project global influence. So, you know, there are all kinds of readings that are possible documents. I think in this case, what Britain, what the, uh, the document is doing is really trying to build on this notion that in a post-Brexit context, Britain needs to look more than ever before to a world outside the European Union. And I think that's really what's driving this. Now, you were speaking of how this document should be read and also about the policies of Arctic countries, as well as non-Arctic states such as the UK and China and others that have published Arctic policies recently. To what extent do these documents actually reflect true Arctic policies or are they more like public relations tools, ways of fortifying the legitimacy of countries wanting to be regarded as Arctic stakeholders? And are there parts of national Arctic strategies that tend not to be articulated in the policy documents? a really interesting question and and I think for example you know I don't work within UK government so I'm reflecting on this as a very very interested observer and my sense is, is that this document should be read in a sense very straightforwardly which is I think this is trying to articulate a vision that the UK government thinks it has for the Arctic and in particular I think the document is about reassuring Arctic states and Arctic stakeholders like, for example, northern communities, that Britain's interests in the Arctic are fairly straightforward and they are listed therein, this particular document. I think all documents have a kind of performative quality. In other words, that I think the document is also about showing the Arctic state that Britain is a serious observer to the Arctic Council and that it has legitimate, what I would describe as extraterritorial interests. For example, in things like science and fisheries in the central Arctic Ocean, you know, that kind of thing. Whether, for example, the document frames every interaction the British government and all its complexity might have with other Arctic stakeholders and non-Arctic stakeholders is, is clearly a very difficult one to answer. The only thing I will say is what's interesting about how we treat different stakeholders is that, for example, when China produces an Arctic statement, first of all, it gets written in both Chinese and English, and it is highly likely that the Chinese version and the English version won't necessarily always align. And then there's always a little bit of ambiguity about what one word might mean in Chinese and what one word might it mean in English, for example. It also tends to get scrutinized more closely than, for example, a British Arctic strategy or statement. I mean, note, of course, Britain doesn't use the word strategy. Uh, We tend to talk about policy frameworks, which is an interesting choice of word in its own regard. So I do think that we tend to read documents sometimes more skeptically or more critically, depending on 
who is the author of that document. So whenever China makes a statement about the Arctic, it's likely to be accompanied by a broader narrative of, for example, One Belt, One Road, Polar Silk Road. Interestingly, with Britain, for all the claims about global Britain, global influence, I don't think it gets read in quite the same way. In other words, we recognize that the infrastructural power of Britain is very, very different to China. And also, we're, for those Arctic audiences, so to say, they're more culturally familiar with Britain. China is a relatively, I mean, relatively new political actor in the Arctic. So just like in the Antarctic, there has always been, I think, a degree of uncertainty about, quote, what China wants from the Arctic. I think what this document is trying to do in the British context is to say, this is what we want from the Arctic, but also this is what we can give to the Arctic. And I think that's why you're seeing all these references here to science and business and technology and, for example, engagement with various communities inside the Arctic, so to say. The policy also makes reference to soft power aspects, such as BBC programs like Blue Planet and Frozen Planet and even historical events, for example, the Franklin Expedition. How important is popular culture and other types of soft power for connecting Great Britain to the Arctic in the global imagination? That's an excellent point, and I think it's one that really deserves stressing. So one of the things that, and this is an utter continuity with British documents, foreign policy statements and documents in general, is that there is a sort of cross-party consensus that Britain does soft power well. In other words, that actually one of our greatest exports continues to be the BBC and a kind of repertoire of programming that many, many audiences around the world find appealing. It's no accident that our new polar vessel is called the Sir David Attenborough. You know, we talk about really high-profile, iconic figures like Attenborough as national treasures for a reason. We know that they have an impact that goes well beyond merely being, for example, a presenter of uh, nature programs. But we also, I think, want to make it clear, and this is where we're particularly talking to both, I think, our Canadian and our Norwegian colleagues, that there are also, there are lots of things we share in both the Arctic and the Antarctic. So, for example, in the Antarctic, you can't tell the British story of the Antarctic encounter without talking about the Norwegians. They are absolutely central to our national history when it comes to the Antarctic, primarily, of course, through whaling, but also through expeditions, joint expeditions, that kind of thing, and very close collaboration thereafter. You can't talk about the Arctic without talking primarily about our relationship with uh, Canada and the North American element of the British Empire. So the Franklin ships, uh, the Erebus and the Terror, provide um, a fascinating, uh, if intriguing, example of how heritage, for example, of how material objects, museums, play a vital part in building and sustaining, if you like, a trans-Arctic relationship between Britain and other parts of the region. And one of the ways it manifests itself, for example, is through exhibitions. So we might have an exhibition at the British Library in London, and then we might have an exhibition, for example, at the, um, the National Museum in Ottawa. And the same exhibits will be shown. And what will be traced in both those exhibits is a shared Anglo-Canadian encounter 
with the Arctic. But it's also an encounter complicated by a relationship, for example, with indigenous peoples. And then, for example, when you begin to think about how Martin Frobisher visited Canada, brought back a number of indigenous peoples to London, to the UK, then actually this encounter, this mobility of people, of objects, of goods, of trade, is a very complicated and ongoing one. So I think the document, although it's not expounding upon this in the, in the detail that I have just done, it's hinting at it. It's saying that actually Britain was and is an Arctic state. And it's only through changes in geopolitics in the post-colonial era that has meant that Britain has now become a near neighbor. Whereas in the recent past, relatively recent past, I should say, it was more than that. So I think there's a very interesting positioning going on here. And I think through things like heritage, through memory, it kind of reminds, I think it's intended to remind the reader that we really are a near, near neighbor. And we're therefore, we're quite different. I think so the document's probably hinting at from these newer actors and players like Singapore, Japan, and China. Another old actor that the UK has a complicated relationship with is Russia. Considering the several spy-related incidents in recent months and years that have strained bilateral relations, you mentioned in the earlier part of the interview that there were concerns about spillover and contamination from the Ukraine crisis in the Ross Sea negotiations in Antarctica. But another term that is sometimes used in regards to Russia and the Arctic is exceptionalism. That Western engagement with Russia on Arctic issues is somehow insulated from conflicts on other matters in other parts of the world. How do these forces of spillover and exceptionalism tend to play out in relations between Russia and the UK and the West in general? Again, another excellent question, because, you know, when it comes to Britain and Russia and the Soviet Union, I mean, we have had such an interesting and complicated relationship with Russia slash Soviet Union. On the one hand, we've had trading relationships with Russia over centuries, some of which, of course, involved Siberia and the northern fringes of the Russian Empire. And London and St. Petersburg are important commercial centers for that business. Um, we had a very close relationship with the Soviet Union during World War II. And if you think about, for example, the history of Arctic convoys, it's a history of British vessels, British sailors traveling north, and in some cases perishing in the north as part of that war effort. You know, and maybe part of what I think we need to do in terms of the UK is sometimes to be a little bit more upfront in acknowledging the extraordinary sacrifice the Soviet Union also made in terms of the Second World War. And so, you know, that's an interesting issue in itself about how we manage these relationships and what we choose to remember and what we don't. With regard to the Arctic, there are some very straightforward geopolitical, geographical facts, if you will, that we can't get around. You know, 50% of, quote, the Arctic region is to be found in Russia. Now, you can argue about where the Arctic region gets defined or not defined, but no one is going to contest the very simple fact that Russia is the most important, quote, Arctic state in terms of sheer size, if nothing else. And the size matters because, of course, it has implications for things like sovereign rights over the Arctic Ocean. So how we manage and how Russia manages us, I mean, it's a two-way process is really difficult because on the one hand, President Putin, in particular over the last 10 years, has made it perfectly clear that the Arctic is something he can return to as 
part of a broader uh, narrative about restoring Russia's great power status. And the Arctic is also an incredibly emotive and important element in Russian nationalism. It is virtually impossible to understand Russia if you don't understand the importance of the Arctic. And indeed, if you don't understand the importance of snow and ice to Russian popular and literary culture. So for me, as an outsider, I've always thought of Russian political culture as very elemental. It's an extraordinary country shaped by the elements, snow, ice, cold, darkness, size. But on the other hand, we also want to constantly champion the idea that Russia is both exceptional but also normal. So, for example, in the Arctic, we get a great deal of emphasis on normalizing Russia. We kind of see lots of people saying, just because it happened in Crimea and Ukraine shouldn't mean it's going to happen in the Arctic. So lots of Arctic specialists write the article saying it won't happen in the Arctic. Russia is, quote, normal. And all these other things that happen are exceptional. But on the other hand, there are a whole group of other people who write articles where, well, if it can happen in Georgia, if it can happen in Crimea, why can't it happen in the Arctic? So I think part of the problem is we in the West just, I think, first of all, don't understand Russia terribly well. And secondly, we can't quite, even when we think we understand Russia terribly well, make up our minds whether Russia is exceptional or whether it's normal, whether it's Western or whether somehow it gets perpetually orientalized, seen as despotic, seen as something that can't possibly understand the subtleties and the nuances and the importance of the liberal international order. And maybe that's why um, you'll find American political scientists like John Ickenbury talking about the post-liberal international order. And maybe what we're seeing here is lots and lots of people who specialize in the Arctic trying to push back against the assumption that this post-liberal international order is somehow done and dusted. In other words, in a curious sort of way, I think what we're seeing in the Arctic is lots of scholars, activists, governments, I think, trying to say, actually, the liberal international order isn't dead. If you look at the Arctic Council, we still find an example of where people want to overwhelmingly collaborate with one another and overwhelmingly want to, quote, follow the rules of the game. Recently, some scholars, I'm not sure if you were one of the scholars, Klaus, uh, that uh, signed a, uh, a nomination for uh, nominating the Arctic Council for the Nobel Peace Prize. Perhaps that uh, speaks to some of the points you just made there. I have to give full credit to Heather Exner-Piro, a Canadian scholar, and some other folks that she was working with in terms of driving this forward. I was very happy to sign that letter. I, you know, have articulated just a moment ago a view that I probably didn't articulate quite as explicitly privately. Some people had asked me about it. But fundamentally, the reason why I supported that letter was because I see the Arctic Council as a laudable example of pushing back against the assumption that we are somehow committed, whether we like it or not, to giving up on the liberal international order. I don't think, for example, you will find also many other intergovernmental forums in the world where indigenous peoples, permanent participants, are given the kind of recognition that they are given in the Arctic Council. And we can argue about how effective that is, whether there are funding issues. All of that I take as noted. But I think fundamentally there was something really quite innovative about the Arctic Council in 1996 
when it made this distinction around the idea of permanent participants. I think that was really important. I also think the Arctic Council players, I think, have resisted the demonization of Russia thesis. I think they've been very strong on not falling into the idea that, you know, we have a second Cold War upon us, that the Arctic is somehow going to inevitably be further militarized, that there is an, uh, a scramble for the Arctic that is going to mean that all the sort of delicate work that is done in terms of diplomacy and statecraft is going to be cast to one side. So I do think there is much in the sense to celebrate with regard to the Arctic Council. But I'm also quite aware that Russia is a challenging partner. And one of the things that I think scares a lot of people is that if you accept the Ikenbury thesis, that there is a post-liberal international order, and he's not the only one, but I'm just using him as an example, then, for example, are we concerned that actually President Putin is not interested in making Russia like the European Union or the United States or Canada, but actually President Putin is making other countries more like Russia. And I think the thing that is really driving some of the conversation is a concern that uh, what we're seeing in America, what we're seeing in Hungary, in Poland and elsewhere are worrying signs that liberal democracy, the liberal order is not quite as strong, as stable, as creditable as we perhaps once thought it was. And I think some of the optimism of the 1990s that the West won the Cold War, that Russia wanted to become like us, I think is now being eroded. And what we're really worried about is whether, as we've said before, is whether this affects the Arctic in really negative ways. Now, it's fascinating how the Arctic provides the perfect platform to discuss these larger geopolitical issues. If we could return for a moment to the UK Arctic policy, there's a box inside the document that mentions a report, the Arctic in 2045, a long-term vision which was the result of a Wilton Park roundtable convened by the British, Norwegian, and Canadian governments. The report makes some pretty bold claims, like the Arctic is geopolitically insulated at present and that no governance gaps exist. So if we look at this from a British perspective, is the UK satisfied with Arctic governance at present? And does it have any geopolitical anxieties now or in the foreseeable future? I mean, I was there at that Wilton Park discussion, and I I remember it was one in which all the parties were thinking with a whole series of Arctic scenarios. And I remember a colleague, Duncan DePledge and myself, wrote a blog post, which sort of, although not directly referencing any of the discussion per se at Wilton Park, nonetheless said, actually, one of the intriguing aspects of all of this is it's really quite difficult to work with scenarios and to think about what what places and regions might be like in even 30 years hence, let alone 50 or 100. My sense is, again, as, an, as a sort of interested observer, is that I think the UK has a really quite simple agenda with regards to the Arctic, which is actually a straightforward one, which is it wants to see the Arctic as a a remaining a peaceful and orderly space. It has little to no incentive to see it as anything else. When you think about, for example, the reductions in our defense capabilities, the last thing we want to see is a return to a Cold War Arctic where we're perpetually worrying about are our nuclear submarines in the places that we want them to be? Do we have sufficient, for example, maritime awareness? So I think when you see statements about an orderly, peaceful Arctic, that is exactly what I think the number one priority is. 
I think the Central Arctic Fisheries Moratorium is a good example of a potential gap in uh, governance being actually addressed. So I think, for example, those negotiations, and of course that were ongoing when the Wilton Park event happened, was something that I suspect a British government, any government, would point to and say, that's a promising development because we know we have the international waters of the Central Arctic Ocean. We know they are likely to become more accessible. This is one important area that, you know, we, we should be addressing. So in that sense, I think something else that should be taken out of this is that if you think about the three parties involved, Britain, Norway and Canada, each of them have a, have a rather different relationship to the Arctic. So I think that's also worth bearing in mind. Britain is the near neighbor. Norway has the border with Russia to think about and a complicated but largely cooperative relationship with Russia that it is very eager to maintain. Canada is the second largest Arctic state. Its Arctic, if you see what I mean, is so different to the Norwegian Arctic. I mean, the Norwegian Arctic is, first of all, in two parts, highly integrated in the case of cities like Tromsø, for example, Kirkenes border, and then Svalbard, which is a geopolitically very, very different part of the Norwegian Arctic. Canada, hugely scattered communities all over the vast Canadian north, relatively small population, 120,000, 130,000, something like that. Different kinds of anxieties and worries, for example, with regard, say, to the Arctic Ocean, the Northwest Passage, compared to, say, Norway, which is fundamentally concerned with the Barents Sea and the relationship with Russia. So I think one of the things you should read from that document and that excerpt that you mentioned is also three countries with very different interests coming to a consensus about what they felt able to agree upon with regards to this topic, Arctic 2045. I think it's very carefully worded. Let me put it that way. To wrap up our discussion and bring a bipolar perspective on national policies, I asked Professor Dodds why there doesn't exist a corresponding British strategy for Antarctica and what that says about how countries approach the two polar regions. You're absolutely right. In the space of five years, we've had two Arctic policy frameworks with different titles and different content, as we've just discussed. We don't have a UK Antarctic strategy, or certainly not one with that sort of simple title. I think also, interestingly, if there was an Antarctic strategy, it would be a strategy, not a policy framework. And the fundamental difference is that when we talk about an Antarctic strategy, we are literally talking about something rooted in British Antarctic territory and deeply connected to our interests in two other overseas territories, South Georgia and the Falkland Islands. Geopolitically, it's very different because we also have to manage a relationship with two counterclaimants, Argentina and Chile. Britain, if it has a rooted presence in the Arctic, I suppose you might point to the summer station that we operate in Svalbard and Neolison. But that's it. You know, that's as rooted as it gets. So when we talk about the Antarctic, we're talking about really, really fundamental, uh, almost like old-fashioned geopolitical issues about resources, territory access. And the British Antarctic Territory is large. It's something like, if I'm trying to remember correctly, probably a million square kilometers. And Britain is, what, 240,000 square kilometers? So you're talking about something considerably larger than the UK itself. I think you're going to see an Antarctic strategy emerging. 
And I think the reason why it's going to emerge is because I think lots of important changes have happened internally involving Britain and the Antarctic that uh, non-British observers may not have spotted. But one of the clearest elements of this is I think British Antarctic Survey has been given a kind of national profile and importance that perhaps was slightly lacking prior to 2011, 2012. And the reason I say all this is because around about that time, there was a, a, a discussion about potentially merging British Antarctic Survey with the National Oceanography Center, which is in the city of Southampton. Now, that was subject to parliamentary debate. It became actually briefly national headlines, and the decision was taken not to merge the two. And then after that, the decision has been taken to, in a sense, really support British Antarctic Survey. And increasingly, you know, the A also stands for Arctic. But fundamentally, when the, you know, when the chips are down, Britain has a very, very strong commitment to British Antarctic Territory. And I suspect that one of the things that the Antarctic strategy will do is re-articulate the importance of Antarctica to Britain. And it will come at a time when there is a growing recognition that the Antarctic continues to be globalized, that countries like China, Korea, continue to invest strongly in Antarctic business. And also, whether anybody likes it or not, the Antarctic Treaty is fundamental to everything we, and I mean we in the collective we, do in Antarctica. I think everybody must have a thought or two about what we would do if that treaty ever, I'm only speculating here, but ever started to wobble or fail. Because fundamentally what the treaty does is to deflect questions about ownership and control of Antarctica. And I think at the moment, everybody is sufficiently invested in the Antarctic Treaty System for that not to happen. But I, I think one of the reasons why you sometimes bring out strategies is either you want to persuade government they need to continue to fund certain things, or else you want to signal to other parties that you're very, very serious about these issues. And I suspect there's a bit of both. That was Professor Klaus Dodds in the second part of the interview for the Polar Geopolitics podcast. We greatly appreciate the insights Professor Dodds has provided on Arctic and Antarctic geopolitics over the course of the past two episodes. And we hope to have him join us again on this podcast to share his expertise as new issues inevitably arise in the polar regions. On the next episode of Polar Geopolitics, I'll be discussing contemporary Arctic governance with Jan Rabik Clemensen of the Royal Danish Defense College, who has recently written a report on the history and legacy of the Yalulasat Initiative and the A5 meeting that took place there 10 years ago. You can follow this podcast on iTunes and Apple Podcasts, on Facebook at facebook.com slash polargeopolitics, and on Twitter at polargeopol. Visit the website at polargeopolitics.com. Additional voiceover by Keith Foster. Theme music by Mark Vandenbosch. Artwork by Daniel Brockman. IT assistance by Katrine Erickson. This is Eric Paglia in Stockholm. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more episodes of Polar Geopolitics.